we're wrapping up our series, Letting Go of the Things That Won't Let Go of You, by looking at a message on how to forgive yourself. If you would, just take a moment with me. Let's bow our heads together. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we are so grateful for everything you've been teaching us, showing us, how you've been leading us through this series. I thank you, God, for the power of forgiveness, that forgiveness is a tool for healing, for healing our life, for setting us free from things that we have no power to change and no power to control. Thank you, God, that forgiveness goes beyond, eclipses the individual, that it can be applied to nations, that that groups of people can come together and learn to forgive one another, to release a past they're unable to change, to move into a future unfettered to that past. And now I pray today as we talk about this area where so many people get stuck in the ability to forgive themselves, that right now you'll begin to speak and minister to our hearts that will really tune in and hear you in these moments that, Lord, you would set us free from the things that we are powerless to change. In Jesus' name, amen. So you took the wrong path. You, you said the wrong thing. You did the wrong thing. You hurt the person you love the most in this life. You can't seem to get over it. Now, that person may have forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. Instead, you remember the thing you did. And every time you remember the thing you did, you kick yourself again. All those lingering, yucky feelings have now soured in your spirit and they cling to you. Honestly, they can become fuel for some pretty destructive things. Take, for example, the well-known actor, Kelsey Grammer. Uh, He's uh, probably one of the most likable and recognizable actors in America since his phenomenal two decades of playing Dr. Fraser Crane on both Cheers and then the spinoff, Fraser. But at the height of Kelsey Grammer's success, he nearly destroyed his own life through alcohol and cocaine addiction. I came across an interview with him in Vanity Fair back in April of 2015, and Grammer talked about what fueled that out-of-control addiction. This is what he said. That was a time when I could not forgive myself for my sister's death. Now, personally, I was totally unaware of the unimaginable loss and tragedy that this man has been through in his life. First off, when he was just 13 years old, his estranged father was murdered, shot by a psychopathic killer. Later, his two half-brothers died in a scuba diving accident. Then finally, his 18-year-old sister, Karen, was abducted, raped, then murdered by a Colorado killer by the name of Freddie Freddie Glenn in 1975. Kelsey was the one who had to identify his sister's body and then inform his mother about her murder. Listen to Grammar lament. He said, I miss her in my bones. I was her big brother. I was supposed to protect her. I could not. It very nearly destroyed me. Then he went on to say, it's hard to explain. It's not rational, but it happens anyway. I know a lot of people who lost their siblings and blame themselves. Unresolved guilt, mistakes you've made, things you wish you'd said or done, or things you wish you'd never said or done. We all have them. And a lot of us, like Kelsey Grammer, we have this unresolved junk in our spirit, and it sits there, and it sours, and it becomes the reason or the fuel for our addiction, or it becomes an excuse for 
beating ourselves up or treating ourselves poorly. So what I want to talk to you about is this idea of self-forgiveness. If you were to take some time this afternoon and just Google self-forgiveness, you would literally find thousands upon thousands of articles that deal with how easy it is to get hung up about our past and unable to forgive ourselves for not knowing better, for not doing better, for the way that we have hurt others, or even putting ourselves in compromising situations. But if you add the word church or sermon or Christian to your word self-forgiveness, and you put that in a Google search, what you'll find is dozens upon dozens of sites telling you that this is not a Christian concept at all. In fact, there's many articles and sermons warning believers to beware of self-forgiveness because that word self-forgiveness is never even used in the Bible. It's just a sign of the new age creeping into the church. So my question as we start out is, is that true? Well, technically, let me tell you right up front that The word self-forgiveness is never used in the Bible. That is true. But that doesn't mean that the concept of self-forgiveness is not taught in Scripture. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that the concept of the Trinity is not taught in Scripture. These are called an argument from silence, and they're notoriously weak arguments. It's also true that self-forgiveness is popular in New Age thinking. But again, you have to have a stronger case than that to totally negate an idea like self-forgiveness. New Age thinking, in my mind, is a lot like rat poisoning. You know, if you, if you were to go into Home Depot or to Lowe's and you went to the pesticides department and you found a box, one of those little cartons of decon rat poison, and you pick it up and you look at the ingredients, what you would discover is down in the corner, you would discover that 99.995% of the ingredients in decon rat poisoning are inert ingredients. Now, inert ingredients can be toxic or non-toxic, but in the case of rat poisoning, the inert ingredients are almost all pure grain, harmless stuff. It's that tiny, minuscule bit of poison in that grain that kills the rat. It's that way with really new age philosophy. It's not all bad or stupid stuff. If it was that way, nobody would believe it. What makes it harmful is the mixture of the toxic with the good. So just because self-forgiveness is a popular concept in new age thinking, that doesn't negate the concept either. So here's what I want to do today. I want to show you how the Bible does teach us about self-forgiveness. It just doesn't use that language. Even more than that, I want to show you how the Bible teaches that there's hope for anybody who struggles with forgiving themselves. Now, the bulk of this message, right up front, I want to explain to you the three types of people that tend to struggle most with self-forgiveness. They are people with a wounded conscience, those with perfectionistic tendencies, and third, those with a bent toward legalism. Then what I'll do is I'm going to wrap up with something that everyone needs to learn about forgiving themselves. So let's begin with those with a wounded conscience. I'll tell you, if you continually feel miserable about your behavior, about your actions, even when you've done nothing morally wrong, you're headed for serious psychological and spiritual problems. Truth be told, a good number of people that I'm talking to right now live under the tyranny of an overactive conscience. It's a badgering voice within you that runs you down and runs your self-esteem down all the time. It, it, It nags you. It tells you, 
You call that acceptable? You think this is enough? Look at all the things you haven't done. This is unacceptable. In short, your conscience is not your friend. It's always making you feel bad, even when you've done nothing wrong. So where I want to begin is understanding how the conscience works. The Bible explains it. It explains it in Romans chapter 2. Verse 15 says this, They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So what Paul does in this verse is he compares the conscience to a judge, a jury, and a witness in a courtroom. Now think about those three roles for just a minute. What, if anything, do they all have in common? What they have in common is none of them makes the law. They only seek to apply it. And that's a good description of the conscience. The conscience doesn't make the law. The conscience simply tries to apply that law. So the question is, what law? From where does the conscience get its law? Well, some people say conscience is from around us. In other words, the conscience is the mere sum total of all the standards of society that have been imposed on us since birth. And there is an element of truth to that, isn't there? I mean, that we do get a sense of right and wrong from society, from that which is around us. Other people say, no, conscience is from within us, that we actually form it ourselves in response to the way we were parented. In other words, our fear of our parents' punishment or rejection, or even the desire to please our parents, these things have caused us to write their laws and expectations on our own hearts. And that's also true. We've done that. But then there are others who say that conscience is from above us, that God gave us a conscience, because conscience is a universal human experience. All people everywhere have an innate sense of right and wrong. Now, we may not agree on all the rights and wrongs, but on the big things, on the major things, we do agree as human beings. But herein lies the problem. Something has happened to our conscience, and that something is called sin. As a result, our conscience no longer recognizes the law of God as good and instead has distorted and added to conscience from that which is around us and that which is within us. And that leads me to the second point. Conscience is not an infallible guide. Now, the Bible is very explicit on this point. You can check out some references. I have them there on your screen. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, 1 Timothy 4, 2, and Hebrews 10, 22. What the Bible teaches is that a person's conscience can be weak, it can be defiled, that we can actually sear our conscience in such a way that it no longer recognizes right and wrong. We can also harden our conscience according to Scripture. So conscience, for lack of a better analogy, is like a wheelbarrow. A wheelbarrow is something that you can guide and direct on your own. It's like what Tolstoy said. He said, when there's a conflict between my life and my conscience, I can change my life or I can change my conscience. You see, whenever my life and my beliefs don't match up, it creates dissonance. And by dissonance, I mean disharmony, a feeling that, that things are uneasy, not right inside. Another way of saying that is, you know, I, when I get this feeling of dissonance, my first response is to get rid of it, to get back to that feeling of ease. Now, I can do that by repenting and changing my conduct, or I can twist my thinking to match my behavior. You know, I've seen this, and you probably have too. When some intelligent, rational person, a person who for all intents and purposes seems to have it all together, 
who so twisted their own conscience to match their behavior that they can look you in the eye and build an airtight case for adultery, for cheating on their mate. Bottom line is this, our conscience is easily distorted by our background, by our upbringing, and by our own sinfulness. But for our purposes today, it's important to point out something else about the conscience, and that's this, what your conscience doesn't understand. And here it is, straightforward, your conscience doesn't understand the difference between the fact and the feeling of guilt. So if we were to open up a dictionary and we were to look up guilt, it would be defined in this way. The fact of having committed a breach of conduct, especially violating the law and involving a penalty. And then it offers a second definition of guilt, which says a feeling of culpability or blame. So guilt is both a fact and a feeling, but they're not necessarily related. For example, someone can be guilty of wrongdoing and not feel guilty. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, just one example, a psychopath. A psychopath, by definition, is a person who commits a heinous crime but feels no remorse whatsoever. And a lesser example, on the way to church this morning to record my message, I went 10 miles over the speed limit, practically all the way here. And yet I stand before you not really feeling guilty. So we can be guilty of having broken laws and not feel guilt. On the other hand, we can feel guilty of wrongdoing when we've done nothing wrong at all. And that's a problem too. What I find fascinating in the scriptures, if you study this word guilt, the three words that are used in the New Testament that are translated guilt, not one of them refers to the feeling of guilt. Instead, what they talk about is people who are liable to judgment or guilty of an offense or a person who's indebted to another. So when God talks about guilt in the Bible, he's talking about true, actual guilt, not the feeling of guilt. For example, in Romans 3, 23 and 24, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's idea, ideal, yet now God declares us not guilty if we trust in Jesus Christ, who in kindness freely takes away our sins. What this verse tells us is that we're all sinners. We're guilty of having violated the laws of God. Now, you can feel that guilt or not feel that guilt. That doesn't matter to God, but it doesn't change the objective fact that we're guilty before God. Does that make sense? So let's begin to look at now some of the differences between true guilt and false guilt. Like number one, true guilt is determined by God. False guilt is determined by others. The truth is many of us have been shooted on all of our life. You should do this. You should do that. We were always made to feel like everything we were supposed to do had a have to attached to it. You have to do these things. Another term for that is false guilt. Now, Steve Shores wrote a great book on false guilt called False Guilt. And in that book, he said this, the mission of a person's overactive conscience is to attract the expectation of others. So an overactive conscience really attracts other people's expectations. These expectations may come from parents, whether living or dead, friends, bosses, God, or even distorted images of God. False guilt is always looking for people to please and rules to be kept. Here's something else you should know about false guilt. True guilt convicts, false guilt condemns. Conviction is very different from condemnation. Conviction shows us our actual sins so that they can be confessed. And once we confess, 
Conviction's work is done, so it leaves. God does not continue to convict us after we've confessed our sins. Condemnation is not like that. Condemnation seeks to exact a punishment. Its purpose is to make us feel bad and to keep us feeling bad. This, by the way, is why the gospel is such good news. When we confess our sins to God, God is completely satisfied. God convicts. God does not condemn. In fact, if you don't know this verse, you ought to write it down, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When I have trusted Christ as my forgiver and my leader, there is no more condemnation coming from God toward me. When you continue to feel bad, worthless, after confessing your sins to God for forgiveness, you just need to know that's not God making you feel bad, that's you making you feel bad. That's condemnation. So here's a great verse that's all about self-forgiveness, but doesn't use the word self-forgiveness and is written to everyone who's ever struggled with it. It's 1 John 3.20. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So the Bible here is expressly acknowledging there's a kind of self-condemnation that exists in the human heart that is clearly not from God. He's talking about this inability to forgive ourselves. He's talking about the self-condemnation that many of us engage in. So when people say the Bible doesn't talk about self-forgiveness, please understand, these are people who really don't understand the Bible, have never read it, who never understand these concepts. Just because it's not using the word doesn't mean it's not being addressed. So he says here, when your heart is condemning you, you need to remember that God is greater than your heart. And what? He knows it all. In other words, he knows everything about you. He knows everything about this situation that you can't seem to let go of, and there's no condemnation coming from him. Some of you need to commit that verse, 1 John 3.20, to memory. Here's another difference. True guilt results in remorse and repentance. False guilt results in regrets and repetition. You know, I have met people, I've met pastors who think this way, that they think if they can keep their people feeling bad about their sins, that that's a good deterrent to sin in the future, when the opposite is actually true. Living in perpetual remorse, constantly beating yourself up over your past, actually causes a greater likelihood for sin. Let me introduce you to a concept that people in recovery know really, really well, but sometimes people outside of recovery don't, and it's called the addictive cycle. This is how it works. Shame, pain, indulgence. So for the addict, the fuel for addiction has always been shame. You feel shame over something you've done. There's something that you cannot release, something you can't let go of. It's often this sense of being unable to forgive ourselves that fuels addiction. So you inflict pain on yourself by living with perpetual regret. You wallow in that misery, and the more you wallow in it, the worse you feel, because shame always leads to pain. The longer you remain locked in a state of self-inflicted pain, the more you begin to long for relief or release from that pain, so you reindulge the addiction. So the cycle just starts all over again. It's always shame, pain, indulgence. It's the classic addictive cycle, and that's what you're doing when you won't forgive yourself. You're setting yourself up to do it all over again. So if you have a wounded conscience, you're going to struggle with self-forgiveness. Here's a second type of person who struggles, and that is those with perfectionistic tendencies. True stories, David, David Simmons, he was a cornerback for the Dallas Cowboys. 
He talks a lot about what it was like growing up with his father. His dad was a military man, extremely demanding, rarely said a kind word, always pushed David with harsh criticism to do better. When David was just a little boy, his dad bought him a new bicycle, totally unassembled, gave it to his son unassembled, and told him to put it together. Of course, he couldn't do it, and when he was nearly at the point of tears, dad finally yanks it away from him. He says, I knew you couldn't do it, and assembled it for his son. When David played football in high school, his dad was again unrelenting in criticism. In the backyard, after every game, dad would go over every play and point out all of David's failures. Simmons said, most boys got butterflies in their stomach before the game. I got them afterwards. Facing my father was more stressful than facing any opposing team. By the time he entered college, David hated his dad. So he chose to play football at the University of Georgia because that school was the school farthest away from his home among all the schools that had offered him a scholarship. After college, he became the second-round draft pick for the St. Louis Cardinals. Joe Namath, who later signed with the New York Jets, was the club's first-round pick that year. Well, Simmons was so excited, so he called his dad in excitement to tell him the good news. The first words out of his dad's mouth were, how does it feel to be second? Unpleasable parents have a way of setting up their children for this problem of perfectionism. So let's begin with a little definition, perfectionism defined. The most simple definition of perfectionism I could find is this. A perfectionist is a person who can never perform well enough to accept their own performance. So one of the surest signs of a perfectionist is the inability to stop thinking about mistakes you've made. It's like not forgiving yourself. It may be because you're a perfectionist. Perfectionists tend to reveal themselves in three distinctive ways. Number one, many perfectionists have a self-promoting style. What I mean by that is they seem to always want to impress others. They might brag, they might... Uh, find ways of displaying their affection. Another term for this is called an approval addiction. Now, you should know, most times, these people are not really full of themselves. Instead, they're really quite empty. They feel empty. They feel very small. And this is the result of approval deprivation. They never got it growing up in life, and so it launches them into the world with this huge gaping hole where approval should have been poured, they now try to get it in other ways. Another defining characteristic of perfectionists is they avoid situations in which they might display their imperfection. Now, this is really common, and even especially among kids. You know, growing up, I, I know that, you know, we had school dances in elementary, junior high, and high school, and I never went to one because I didn't know how to dance, and I didn't want to look like an idiot. And some people, there are things that you would like to try things that you'd like to do, but you never build up the nerve to do it because you too are afraid of looking like a beginner. Oftentimes, this holding back from things we want to do is a sign of perfectionism. A third way perfectionists can be known is their tendency to keep problems to themselves. These are people who rarely, if ever, really truly admit their problems and failures to anybody. These may be people you know or think you know really well. But what you would discover, the common thread in all your conversations, they don't talk often about their real weaknesses, about their home life, their personal struggle, their marriage, or their relationships. More often than not, that person is a perfectionist. So where does perfectionism come from? 
Perfectionistic messages come from parents, peers, and other people. Most perfectionists grew up with parents who were either directly or indirectly communicating to them they were not good enough. So it could be like David Simmons' father, but it can also be the result of conflicting messages. You know, what I'm talking about is parents who give praise and criticism simultaneously. Like, you know, that was nice, but I know you could do better. These parents mean well. They really do want to motivate their children to excel. But the unintended message that comes through that warping of praise and criticism simultaneous is, just get it right next time, then I'll approve of you. Some perfectionists also come out of chaos, out of chaotic childhoods where they had no real control over their circumstances and what was happening around them. They may have had chaos because of their parents' divorce, a relocation, a family crisis, an illness, an incarceration, any number of hardships. And what they do is they find control where they can get control in their own little world. So they feel their life is kind of disordered and spiraling out of control over here. So in this part of their world, they might become neatniks in their bedrooms and keep it immaculately clean. They might do their work in school with unex- with exceptionally um, great effort and, and, and great reward, or even attempt to control their younger brothers and sisters. So let's talk about the effects of perfectionism. Number one, perfectionism leads to indecisiveness. It was Winston Churchill who said perfectionists spelled paralysis. Perfectionists often have trouble making decisions. They're so worried about making the wrong one that they either fail to make any conclusion or they wait until a decision is actually forced on them. A second characteristic, perfectionism leads to procrastination. Many perfectionists are procrastinators, and most procrastinators are perfectionists. Because procrastination is the best way to hang on to the illusion of perfection. You see, either I could have done it had I had more time, or if my performance was mediocre, I can explain it away because it was a last-minute rush. Therefore, I can never be judged on my performance because I never let anyone see me at my best. Third, perfectionists are consistent underperformers. Perfectionism is to underperform in all areas of life. It's like Rick Warren said, perfection paralyzes potential. In other words, it defeats our initiative. Why? Because it's a goal that's unattainable. Here's a good word to all perfectionists. This is Ephesians 1.4. Long ago, even before he made the world, God chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He decided to make us holy in his eyes without a single fault. We who stand before him covered with his love. What this verse explains is how God makes us acceptable. He he says, "By by his grace, not by your attainment, not by your works, not by how hard you strive. Grace is completely contrary to human nature. God is not a God of push and shove. God is not the one who is driving you to do more and more, to run faster and faster. Grace is God's unconditional acceptance of us. Faith is our acceptance of God's acceptance of us. That acceptance and that approval that you have always craved, that place that's been so wounded at the center of your soul, it is meant to be filled by the one who knows you best and loves you most.
We're going to talk more about that as we wrap up. But first, let's talk about this third type of person who struggles with self-forgiveness, and that is those who are bent toward legalism. Now, this is one of the lies that the people of Galatia fell for. The entire book of Galatians is written to address this error. Look at how Paul said it. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The Judaizers, who were the false teachers in Galatia, they taught a Jesus plus religion. Here's the deal. They didn't say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. They didn't deny his death and resurrection. They didn't preach against believing in Christ. What they did that, that caused Paul to find so utterly objectionable was to teach people what Christ started, you need to finish. They wanted people to believe in Christ plus follow the Jewish rules. They wanted you to be saved, but then also be circumcised. I want you to hear me saying this. God is completely satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. Are you satisfied? Is Jesus enough for you? Or do you think that there's something you need to add to his completed work on his death, burial, and resurrection? Friends, we destroy the gospel anytime we add to it. Whenever you add to the gospel, what we're really saying is that Christ is not enough, that something else or someone else must become your savior. More often than not, that's you. You become your own savior. Listen to Paul explain. They are trying to make themselves good enough to gain God's favor by keeping laws and customs, but that is not God's way of salvation. If you want to kill your spiritual life, Focus more on rules than on your relationship with Christ, and that'll do it every time. Here's the deal. Legalism will always and only lead you to one of two places, either spiritual pride or spiritual defeat. You see, you either become prideful because you convince yourself that you're really good at keeping the rules, but the only way you keep the rules is exactly the way the Pharisees kept the rules, and that is by keeping them only in the most superficial and external kinds of ways. They were not effective in keeping the rules, but if you reduce the rules to that, you'll feel prideful. But the other consequence is far more likely, and that is legalism will lead you to defeated living because you become aware, acutely aware, of just how far you fall short of God's standards. You're aware that you can only keep those rules in a superficial sense. You live instead with this constant attitude of being a failure of self-recrimination because inside, where it counts, your attitudes, your desires, your lusts, they're not being changed. So you can't forgive yourself because you can't forgive the failures at keeping the rules. Listen again to Paul in the book of, I'm sorry, this is Luke in Acts chapter 15 from the Message Bible. So why are we trying to out-God God? Loading the, these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too. Don't we believe that we're saved because of the master Jesus amazingly and out of sheer generosity moved to save us just as he did those who do not look or act like we do? So what are we arguing about? Think of it like this. The law, the Old Testament law, is like a dentist mirror. You know that little mirror they stick in your mouth when they're examining your teeth or maybe working to fill a cavity or something like that? With that mirror, they can better see the cavity. But the dentist doesn't drill with the mirror. They don't extract teeth with the mirror. It shows them the decay, but it can't provide the solution. The law is like a dentist mirror. 
It shows us what's wrong. It clearly exposes the problem, what's out of order in our life. But the law is powerless to fix any of those problems. It's not the solution. It's just there to expose the problem. Only a living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ can truly set us free. If you struggle in an area of sin, no list of rules is going to set you free. I don't care where you read that. I don't care who told you that. It's not possible. The law is just a mirror. It's not the path of salvation. The only thing that sets us free is a relationship with God. You know why so many believers feel dead inside? It's because they spend all of their effort and all of their energy trying to live a godly life in their own strength. Instead of turning their lives and their struggles over to God, they keep searching for some new technique, some new method, some new program for righteousness. And none of those things ever work. As long as we try to deliver ourselves through programs and formulas, our efforts will fail. That's legalism. And it's a perpetual reminder of our sinfulness and only leaves us discouraged and defeated. So the person who truly longs to be set free from self-condemnation, from a lack of self-forgiveness, what do they need more than anything else? What they need is this last principle. They need to learn to accept God's acceptance of us. Do you know that in the entire Old Testament, there's only 14 references to God as Father? And in all those references, they are describing God's unique relationship to Israel as a nation. But nowhere in the Old Testament is there any evidence that anyone in Judaism ever addressed God as my Father. Yet that's exactly what Jesus did in every prayer. And not just that, he uses a more intimate term for Father, the Aramaic word Abba. And Abba is this word that's more akin to our English word, Daddy. It would be the first words from a young child's mouth as they refer to their father. It's a very familiar form of address. Jesus addressed God as Daddy. And not just that, encouraged us to do the same. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So God is not just master, Lord of the universe, almighty king. He is daddy to each and every one of us. I, I wonder how much our prayer lives would change. If we just began the simple practice every day as we meet God in the morning to cry out to him, Daddy, that term doesn't diminish him. It's not insulting to him. It's how Jesus encouraged us to pray. It's the way Jesus prayed. It's the way to, to bring your relationship down from a place where sometimes we are very impersonal in how we talk to God and talk to him as truly our Daddy. It's, it's a wonderful quote I found by Sinclair Ferguson. I want to share it with you. He said, although we, we may be broken and bruised, tossed about with fears and doubts, the child of God, nevertheless, in his need, cries out, Father, as instinctively as a child who's fallen and been hurt, out, hurt calls out in similar language, Daddy, help me. Assurance of sonship is not reserved for the highly sanctified Christian. It's the birthright of even the weakest and most oppressed believer. You know, in my life, there are two people who can call me daddy, 
And they're my two daughters whom I love with every fiber in my being. And they know they have a unique access to me, unlike many others. Years ago, when we were in the old building, we were running the strip mall shopping center across from Winters Park on North Garland Road. We were only probably running about 600 people at the time in two separate services. And I was in mid-sermon. I was preaching, just like I'm preaching right now. And I see my daughter, Haley, who had to be maybe six years old at the time. I saw her come through the back doors of the church. And Brenda, my wife, was not with her. Her sister wasn't with her. She's just alone. And she comes walking in. And I'm thinking, why is my daughter in the main auditorium? Then pretty soon, she starts snaking her way down the main aisle. And before you know it, she is standing right in front of the pulpit. I'm mid-sentence. And she looks up to me and she says, Daddy, where's Mommy? Of course, I didn't know quite what to do in the moment. I just said, hey, you know, I don't know, sweetheart, but can somebody help my daughter find her daddy? And Jim Junta, I'll never forget, he hopped up. He was near the front row, and he took Haley in to go find her mom, wherever she happened to be. But I thought a lot about that incident. I mean, I've thought about it so many times since it happened. And I just think, you know, she just knew in that moment that none of the people in that room mattered to me as much as she did, and that she had complete and unhindered access to me. She came before me confidently as her daddy, that I would care about her, that she didn't know where mom was, and she was right. I wonder how, how much we transfer that to God. Do we know how available God is to us as our daddy, that we are as precious. You know, Jesus compared one time our parenting to God's parenting. He says, you know how to be good to your kids. Don't you think the Father in heaven is just like you? So God is completely accessible to me. In fact, theologians have a term for this. It's, it's an attribute of God. They call it his eminence. And God's eminence, what that means is that God is fully present, past, present, and future. In other words, God is not bound by space and time like we are. Now, the implications of this is staggering. And what it means, because God is not bound by time and space, is when I come before God in my vulnerability and I cry out daddy to him, he has an eternity just for me. You know, some people, their concept of God is so small, they think that God is overwhelmed because millions of people all around the globe are praying to him simultaneously, and God has to somehow sort through all of that confusion. No, God is not bound by time and space. God has an eternity for you just to devote to you and your needs. You are the most important thing before him when you come before him. Don't you think it's time we begin to understand God as he really is. Brennan Manning once time was counseling a woman, an elderly incest survivor. She loved and served God with all of her heart, but she really struggled with God's acceptance. And Manning taught her to pray a simple prayer. He said, I want you to pray it every day, several times throughout the day. As you breathe in, I just want you to say, Abba. And as you breathe out, I want you to say, I belong to you. Abba. I belong to you. And make that her practice. And she did that. She did that faithfully for weeks. And he said that simple practice alone transformed her life. I think that would be a really meaningful practice for a lot of us. To just pray a simple prayer. To hold it in our heart all day long. Abba, 
I belong to you. I think it's time we let our Abba begin to wear Jesus' face instead of the face of the person who twisted his image. God is not like your unpleasable parent. He's not like those who have deeply wounded your conscience to make you feel bad even when you do nothing bad. And God is not like that distorted, broken spiritual leader who loaded up your view of spirituality with a bunch of rules that do nothing but create discouragement in your heart. God is the one who knows you best and loves you most. And when you're in Christ, there is never condemnation flowing from his heart to yours. Instead, I find perfect acceptance in the Father. You know, we're so afraid of admitting our mistakes and our failures. We, we, we feel like we have to hide. We have to cover them up. We live in fear of their disclosure. But you know what? God is the one who knows it all. God is the one who's never fooled by the mask we wear. He knows the real you, and he loves the real you. So this fear that we'll be rejected if we're known is not true and not applicable at all when it comes to God. Look at these verses. God has accepted you because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit have done for you. Or how about this verse? God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. What this verse tells us is that God took the initiative in our relationship when we are sinners, when we, he knew we were not okay. That's when he showed his great love. And you know why that's so different? Because God's love and acceptance preceded our disclosure. No other relationship you have is like this. Every other relationship you have, a person has to know what you did, know what you said, has to hear it first, decide how they feel about it, and then decide whether or not they're going to accept you. God says, I already know everything about you and my settled disposition toward you is love. I accepted you before you confessed to me. So God leads with acceptance. With him, I never have to pretend to be something I'm not. I can be totally honest about who I am because he already knows. He's just waiting to know if we know because that's what confession is. Confession is me finally acknowledging I know the truth about my brokenness. You never have to pretend with God. The truth about me is never hidden from him. I love the way J.I. Packer said it. There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. You see, ultimately, the question of whether we'll be released from regret, whether we can forgive ourselves, is whether we're going to believe God. You can mark it down. Your wounded heart is going to argue with you on this one. Your wounded heart wants to condemn you. Your wounded heart is full of self-recrimination. But you know, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart, and he knows it all. Your wounded heart's going to tell you this isn't true. You're still condemned. God in his word tells you that's not the case. Instead, you're accepted. So who am I going to believe, God or my wounded heart? I choose to believe God because he is greater than my heart. Let me just wrap up with this verse one more time, and then we'll pray. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Would you pray with me? Father, I can't help but think that there are people listening to the sound of my voice right now who have profoundly wounded consciences, who have had distortion from around them, from within them, from the way they were parented, from their own sinfulness. And because of that, 
they have a ninth degree black belt and beating themselves up. And they beat themselves up mercilessly about things, God, often that aren't even sinful. I pray, God, that they would find the release that's found in Abba's arms. I pray for those who are bent toward perfectionism. They've been wounded deeply in life. They've been made to feel unacceptable. Their performance was always just short of what it should be. They never fully were accepted. Lord, what you assure us in your word is that the one who really does know everything about us, past, present, and future, none of it's hidden from you. You are a God who is imminent. And in your eminence, you're able to see the totality of our life. And in seeing the totality of our life, you decided to love and accept us. God, what we need is a healing for the deep wounds in our spirit where acceptance should have been poured. Now it can be poured into our life in abundance by the one who is the best to judge who we really are. And God, I pray for those who've been bent toward legalism, who, who, who think that somehow it's their behavior, their ability to keep the rules that's gonna get them to where they need to be. God, it's such a discouraging, wasteful way to live. It's, it's a way to stay defeated unless we delude ourselves into thinking that all you care about is external compliance. So Lord, I pray that those who've been fed this lie of legalism, that they would come to know and understand what makes the gospel so amazing is that Jesus is truly enough. What you accomplished in your death, burial, and resurrection you made it, all of us acceptable in the eyes of God. So Lord, may we learn to accept your acceptance of us. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. I am really glad that you chose to stay with us these four weeks during this series on how to let go of the things that won't let go of us. As always, right after this message, we've got a short time of discussion with our pastors. I hope you'll hang around and be with us. Have a blessed week. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for the discussion. As we dive deeper into the aspect of self-forgiveness, we just wanna let you know that we really wanna see your answers to the questions in the comments below. And if you're looking for a community group, a great way to find one is by texting the letters CG, which stand for community group, to 96995. Josh, you wanna take it from here? Thanks, Patrick. So great to wrap up the forgiveness series and to have you both here as we talk about self-forgiveness. I was talking to the guys before we started about how I was feeling good about the first three messages, and then we get to this one, and I realized maybe I'm wrestling with this one the most, and I wish I just wasn't even aware that I needed self-forgiveness, but it's something I can work on. But I'd love to hear, as I'm working through this revelation that I've got some self-forgiveness to work on, what do you think are the the things that identify that we need to be forgiving ourselves? How do we point that out? How do we see that we need to practice self-forgiveness? I mean, it's a good good question. And, you know, I'd have to start with a confession that, you know, the, this is not a message I found someplace out on the internet and went re-preached it. This is the message of my life because I, I have been all three of these people. I'm the person with the wounded conscience. I'm the person who's a perfectionist. I'm the person who was a legalist. And I know what it's like to wrestle with these self-recriminating thoughts and this ability to beat myself up mercilessly uh, over things I've done and failed to do. And everything about my environment, everything about my upbringing, all those things fed and fueled this in my life. But I think for me, more than 
anything is this idea of condemnation versus conviction about how God really does work. Because when God comes in my life and there's sin, because sin goes against his plan and his will and his desire for us, it's going to keep me from flourishing. God is going to convict me about a sin, which is to bring my awareness to it so that I confess it to him. And confessing it to him is he he has full satisfaction in that. He, he doesn't need anything more than that. When I have confessed a sin to God, and I continue to feel this sense of self-recrimination and feel bad about me and just wallow in that misery, what I'm doing is actually a form of self-atonement. I feel like, well, if I feel bad enough for long enough, then God's going to really forgive me. And that's just wrong thinking. But the big thing is I'm living counter to his truth because... Romans 8.1 assures me, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that sense of condemnation that I have is not coming from God. And I think that's probably the biggest perpetuator of this, mm-hmm. is when I feel like, well, this is how God wants me to feel. He wants me to feel just horrible about this and keep on beating myself up. No, that ain't God. You know, that that's you doing a number on yourself. And we should never confess false guilt like it's real. I confess true guilt to God. I get remedy for that. False guilt, I have to confront with the truth. And the truth is that God accepts me as I am, loves me as I am, and I am fully forgiven by God. So this comes down to whether or not I'm going to believe the truth of God, or I'm going to believe this lie in my broken conscience, in my wounded heart, in the distortions of society around me. Who do I believe, God or them? That's good. I think you brought up some interesting parts about confessing true guilt rather than fake guilt. I grew up in a youth group where he who had the worst sin almost got the most attention. So I felt there were moments I had to make up fake <laughs> sins in order to get the right attention from everybody. But it's I love the question that you asked that, you know, how do you recognize this? Because you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to forgiving yourself, a lot of times you just don't see that mirror in front of you, which is why I am so grateful for the friends that I have in my life, what I call my community, because they're in a sense, they're a mirror to myself to see what I can't see about myself. Uh, Ironically, I have to walk through an issue of forgiveness with one of my closest friends right now. But one of the things that I miss most about him is that he was such like that clear picture of seeing that there's some things about myself that don't match up with what God says. And Mm -hmm. if one of those issues is self-forgiveness, then I need to take Mm -hmm. uh, account of that. Um, And so even even our community group, I know that we've, uh, even in the last few weeks, have really focused in on issues of race. And our community group is incredibly racial diverse, which shows me that mirror of allowing me to see what I really can't see Mm -hmm. about myself. Yeah, that first step is I need to recognize there is something there. Um, I think too often I have scales on my eyes still that need to fall off that when I look in the mirror, when I have a mirror to hold it up to, I can see, all right, I've got to step into this. I got to lean in and forgive myself because too often I I have regret, but I don't have remorse. Mm. Uh, and so regret leads to repetition and remorse leads to repentance. And so my regret is, I wish I didn't do that. Now I've, I've got to white knuckle it so that I don't do it again. But eventually I'm going to feel shame and shame's going to make me feel pain. 
and then pain's going to lead to indulgence, and then I'm repeating again and again. So I got to realize there's these triggers of, well, why does that frustrate me all the time? Why am I always angry about this thing? Why does that person drive me crazy? Well, maybe there's an internal thing that I need to consider. And so as we look at these internal things, what are the specific hurdles that you think that we need to get over to start practicing this this self-forgiveness? I know you talked about three big things, three types of people that are in the shame cycle, um, but what would you say are some of those hurdles that keep us from stepping into accepting God's well, I, you know, what you just said is is just a, the perfect example of that, of the shame, pain, indulgence, addictive cycle that we convince ourselves that it is helpful to be self-recriminating. We convince ourselves that this serves a useful purpose to keep on beating myself up and feel bad about myself. We wouldn't do those things if we didn't perceive a payoff in that. We do that. But it really, all it does is perpetuate the very thing we want to be broken free of. You know, we we continue to feel bad about this thing I did or failed to do. And often it's the things we failed to do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just things of sin of commission, it's sins of omission. I, I, I failed to do this thing, so I just feel horrible about myself. I feel this sense of shame. Shame is a being word. It's about who I am. And then I start feeling inflicting this psychic pain upon myself, this this perpetual regret, this feeling of badness, which can lead to a lot of really bad behavior. And ultimately, like what with Kelsey Grammer, you know, his inability to forgive himself for his sister's death led to addiction, but it can lead to indulgence of all sorts that are just destructive, where all we do is stay in this cycle. We've got to come to realize that engaging in regret and perpetual um, self-recrimination is not getting us where we need to be. It's actually keeping us locked in that state. And the only way we'll ever be free is to be as honest as you are right now to say, this is what I do. Mm -hmm. And then to say, I'm going to accept at face value what God said, that, that I'm forgiven, I'm released, that I don't have to go on down this path Uh, I can't tell you the number of people I have met that, um, and these are spiritual leaders who, who I think perpetuate addiction and perpetuate problems by continuing to make people feel bad over things they've confessed. I just think you don't get it at all. I mean, this is not what God does. We don't, we we don't have any example of scripture of God doing that. And yet we do it thinking that that's somehow beneficial and, and it's not, it's beneficial to know that we're loved and accepted by God. It's beneficial to know I've been fully forgiven for sins that were wrong. And I own that to God. That's the benefit. There's no benefit in self-recrimination. I love the three aspects you brought up that there's legalism, perfectionism, and uh, wounded wounded consciousness. And as you were saying that in the sermon, I was thinking of legalism that Jesus met Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, Mm -hmm. who lived, eat, and breathed legalism. I think of perfectionism, and I think of Martha, the mother of Mary, Mm -hmm. who had the exact way of doing things, and this is how it's going to be done. And if it deviates from that, everybody's going to hear about it. And then I think of wounded consciousness, which you can pick any number of of people that Jesus Peter. came across yep. that yeah. all had this Thomas. deep wound within them. And out of 
every single one of those, the answer that Jesus gave was grace. Mm -hmm. Grace through his healing, grace through his teaching, grace through his word. And so out out of all of them, each one has their own specific way of battling. I, I feel like I deal with legalism the most, and I feel like legalism is especially crippling because it's the one that sweeps over uh, self-forgiveness the most, mm-hmm. because if I put other good things over in front of it, around it, then all of a sudden that these good works justify my actions towards myself and mm-hmm. others rather than actually doing the work to uncover it. Yeah. It's I'm... really great. You think of biblical examples like that. Part <laughs> B for this series. There you go. <laughs> yes. You should, that's good. You read your Bible, I suppose. I try. <laughs> good. Yeah. It's good to know. But I think Seeing those examples in people close to Jesus gives us an awareness that this isn't some new thing. This is something Jesus encountered head on directly in person and showed us his love in that, which allows us to see he does accept us. You know, he he didn't say, Peter, you're done mm-hmm. forever. Instead, mm-hmm. he said, feed my sheep, tend my mm-hmm. flock. I'm going to build a church on you, Peter, and, and it's going to bring forth the hope of the world. For, for me, I'm more of a wounded consciousness, um, and I, I don't want to say legalist, but I rely heavily on good enough. Hmm. You know what? I've been good enough. I deserve a cheat meal. I deserve a little this, a little that. I, you know, I, I'm doing okay. I'm, I haven't killed anyone, <laughs> so that's good. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't robbed. These are So I'm okay, and I think that okay is me not dealing with the wounds of my past, not mm. dealing with my lack of self-control. As as an Enneagram 7, I have, have no self-control because we're all about let's do what is most fun, most enjoyable right now in the moment and not think beyond the moment um, and not dwell in the past because the past is difficult and I don't want to <laughs> dwell there. So th- those are hurdles I need to be able to say, all right, I... I'm not good enough, and I won't be good enough, and I don't deserve anything, And but God steps in, and he gives the acceptance, and he says, you're perfect, you're holy, mm-hmm. so be holy and, and walk in that way, walk in righteousness. But it's so hard to comprehend that. Mm-hmm. What What is so hard about God's grace for us and God's acceptance of us? What's so hard to comprehend in that? Well, you know, and that's a perfect question too, Josh, that the the thing I come back to again and again is David Benner's book, Surrender to Love, and the simple statement he made that it's not the fact of the unconditional love of God that changes us. It's the experience of the unconditional love of God that changes us. We can know in our heads that God loves us, accepts us as we are. We we see, even in this message, the revelation of his word that tells us, even when our hearts condemn us, you know, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. We can hear that and know objectively that's true. Inside, I don't know it is true. Mm -hmm. The reason I don't know it is true is because I haven't experienced it. So the question then is, how do I experience the unconditional love of God? Well, you don't experience the unconditional love of God when everything is great in your life, when everything's going well. When I experience it then, I just feel like it's an affirmation of my worthiness that I'm finally getting it right. So God loves me. Mm-hmm. You experience his unconditional love when you need it most and you least deserve it. So in the midst of your greatest failures, when you are ready to jump all over yourself with both feet and you find yourself most unwilling to forgive and you hear the voice of God in your spirit saying, I love you, 
and I accept you, and I am with you every step of this way, it's then, in those moments, I come to trust that love. It's experiencing it. And sometimes I don't experience it. Maybe I can't hear God's voice in my spirit well enough yet. Maybe I'm not that level of discernment. But like what you were saying, Patrick, in my community, there are people who surround us and say to us the message God wants us to hear. And I experience unconditional love in that moment. And that, in my brokenness, to experience unconditional love is what truly transforms us. I don't think I could say it any better, so I'm not going to try. Uh, I would I would just add like that experience from knowing something to believing something, yeah. like you said at the very end, can often come from listening to God's still, still small voice in your heart, but also from showing somebody else showing you grace. When somebody else shows you grace, you're like, that's what God's talking about. Mm-hmm. That's what God meaning. I remember when somebody forgave me of a $10,000 mistake, which to me, was it's a lot of money now. It was definitely a lot of money in yeah. college. And when I was forgiven that simple mistake that cost somebody $10,000, I realized that's what a, that's what like the master who forgave his ser- servant of a lot of money required of him. And so if I've been forgiven of that, that much, I now know how to forgive others of that much, including myself including other people. As other people need grace in my life, I now have been shown that grace and I know how to distribute that grace now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's brilliant awareness for sure. I think acceptance, too often I consider that as a verb. It's something that God does. He accepts us uh, or he, he this time he'll accept this or whatever, but it's really an identity statement for mm-hmm. me. And so to hear the voice of God, it's, you know, you you are who God says you are, and I am who He says I am. So I'm my son is what He would say. And when I think when I'm so far from deserving forgiveness, so deep into sin and struggle and shame and whatever, He steps in and says, "My son, mm-hmm. you you. There's nothing you can do to change that." I I tell my daughter all the time. My my son's a little young to comprehend. He's not even two yet, but my daughter's almost five, and so I say. I love you. And I'll say, do you know why I love you? And she says, because I'm pretty, because I like donuts, because I'm sweet, stuff like that. And I say, no, I love you because you're my daughter. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And and she she's starting to understand that, I think, because she's brilliant, for sure, smartest kid ever. <laughs> but also, there's nothing she can do to change that. And so there's nothing she can do to change my love for her. And that's exactly what God is pouring over us is he just blesses us, lavishes us with acceptance. My son, my daughter, there's nothing we can do to change that. Our identity is given from him. Right. And that is a revelation for self-forgiveness. That's okay. We're, we're not defined by anything but him. Yeah. And so if he's forgiving us, then we should for, forgive us as well. So powerful four weeks. Thank you for bringing the word and and pointing us back to God, calling us to forgiveness in this season of dissension, this season of division, where if we forgive ourselves and forgive others, there's pretty cool things that can happen as far as God's glory and healing where we're at in this season. So thanks, Keith. Thanks, Patrick, for joining us. I'm excited to go back and read the comments to see how people have joined us in this conversation. And I look forward to uh, the next few weeks of getting together.